Hi, my name is Lori Brown Kindred, and this, well, this is Bad Right Breast. It's known among artists, specifically theater, to plow through the rehearsals, tech rehearsals, and performances despite any health mishap. So when you're in the middle of a show and you are having trouble swallowing or having this weird thing grow out the side of your neck or your poop out of all things isn't just right, well, you'd think it'd be no big deal to have it checked out. There's something to be said of the stigma in the industry about being sick. And we all hope that the reckoning aftermath from COVID for self-care and the value of the persons as actual humans and not just meat puppets have all stuck. So what happens when you're in the middle of a gig or career path and you have a cancer diagnosis? Here's our amazing artist sharing their stories. I was in LA the first time that I moved to LA. I never had a consistent full-time job in my early 20s, but I, I came out here to make it in TV and I was doing odd jobs. Twice a week, I was at an independent recording studio for like a rich guy in his basement. And twice a week, I was doing laundry and cutting up fabrics for a wedding dress designer. I was kind of just doing anything I could, but I had uh, written and directed a couple TV pilots and was working at the time on pitching a show to NBC, which is like very LA that I'm doing both of these things at the same time. My team at the time had put together a, like a sizzle reel, which is like a little video of parts of the show that you imagine being in the show because producing a whole other pilot just seemed like a lot of work at the time. And they ended up passing and the production company that I was working with at the time was like, let's pitch it to other places. But then I got cancer. And so I moved back to Portland and kind of retreated into the shadows at that point. Like I said, it was Christmas time. So I had gone home. And, you know, everything's on hiatus. We weren't necessarily actively doing anything in the moment. I just kind of dropped the ball on keeping touch with my agent, my manager, and the other people that I was working with at the time. I told my writing partner, our relationship was kind of fraught at the time. So it was kind of just cool, bro. I'm not coming back. Kind of left him to explain to everybody else where I went. Not that I wished any of those people ill. I thought they were all lovely. I just Yeah, I just didn't really want to deal with it. I think because uh, my experience in LA, especially as a young person trying to start a career and being in poverty the whole time is just like you're, you feel so much obligation to try to make it happen. It'd been a couple of years of like (sighs) missing family reunions and and weddings and funerals. I mean, like I just, I felt like I had to be on all the time and I felt like I had to sacrifice my own mental health pretty constantly. I just made a a judgment call pretty immediately that I was just like, I'm not going to deal with, I'm not going to, I remember my writing partner calling me and being like, Hey, so Stuber is the company we were working with at the time. He was like, Hey, I told Stuber that like you have cancer, but you're writing a, a screenplay about like a young girl who has cancer. And I was like, 
I'm not. And he's like, but you could, they said it sounded interesting. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. I'm in the middle of having cancer. And like, you know, like whatever I was like making a web series about it, I guess. But like, yeah, I needed to process my own experience before I was going to let someone like pressure me into feeling like I needed to like commodify that experience. Um, so that turned me off pretty quickly. And like, I think paints like a, unfortunately kind of accurate picture of <laughs> what my life was at the time where like that I felt tempted at all. Like, Oh, I guess I should be doing that was just, no, you, you got to cut that off. And then finally take care of yourself. What a novel concept. What a novel concept. Yeah. I had had a a surgery the year before where I had one of my organs removed and uh, he was calling me constantly. I was getting calls all the time about like filling out paper. I was getting like profiled in some magazine and I had to like do an interview while I was like on painkillers. And like, I don't know, like, I just like, I you know, and I had severe depression the whole time, which is a whole other thing. It's just like, I was never taking care of myself ever. I didn't really feel like I deserved to be taking care of myself. I remembered it making that surgery experience from the previous year so much more stressful that I was still trying to like answer emails on time and pick up the phone and like do all this stuff. Why? We're humans. And when you're young, you feel like you have to make it happen right away. And it's like, ideally I'm alive for like 50, 60 more years after this? I don't know. I'd love to be a hundred. That's my grandma's goal. She's going to live to be a hundred. I'll just do that. Why am I in a hurry? When my friend had said to me, Hey, I want you to get this checked out. I was about to go into kind of a, a two week boot camp style performance and production directing your good man, Charlie Brown with some kids. And so I had my ultrasound and my chest x-ray kind of done while they were in musical rehearsals. So I would pass them off to the musical director and then hop in my car and run over and get the imaging done and trying to schedule the structure of the rehearsal process around when I needed this imaging work done. I also remember when I had the initial surgery, when I thought it was a lipoma, I thought it was going to be in and out. You know, I I had already accounted for that. I was directing two one acts with some high schoolers. I ended up just needing to say, hey, the stage manager is going to meet with you. You're going to run lines and it will be a chaperone in the room not being able to direct on my feet as much as I would like during that process. And then when I was finally diagnosed, I was in the midst of directing a fourth grade musical production of The Lion King Kids. That was my goal was to get to production week. When we turned to the oncologist and he said, we want to start with this oral chemotherapy. Truly, the first words out of my mouth were, I can finish directing The Lion King and I can finish directing this show. That was very much the litmus test of how was I doing? Were my side effects manageable enough that I could make this show happen? Funny things came up. I say funny in terms of, you know, we all need kind of comedy as a coping mechanism. I didn't know that chemo can cause rapid tooth decay the dental impacts are huge, which is something that nobody really talks about. And so I needed a root canal in the middle of tech week 
I took off during the day, had my root canal and came back still kind of numb, you know, doing that really attractive, partially drooling thing and being like, don't look at your feet. <laughs> look at the audience, smile, project, you know, giving my, my standard director commands while looking like, you know, I'm frothing at the mouth. So I'm sure that was very entertaining to all involved. Those lovely actors did me the favor of providing me with the dignity of not laughing at me and really committing. And really each season of my treatment has been marked in some way by a production or a production that I had hoped to be a part of and needed to back out of. It's really interesting to look back on that and see how it, it lined up. I always do like 17 different things. I have private art students. I was getting ready to travel somewhere. Of course, I can't remember. It feels like such a long time ago. So again, I'd been in Ecuador for six weeks. And then my daughter went to school in Scotland for a semester. So we'd taken her to Edinburgh. Then I had come back and it was getting close to like Christmas time. There wasn't anything on the immediate forefront because it was getting ready for the holidays. I mean, I just besides just like teaching. What I did was I decided to go into playwriting. It was sort of this convergence of being a middle-aged woman and the material that was available to a middle-aged woman because I'm mostly interested in the classics. The writing is what interests me most. On or around my cancer diagnosis, I also was thinking about going back to school. I've always wanted to get a master's. I found a program that is a low res program. I started contacting him about it. Of course, then I had my cancer diagnosis. The way it worked out was in 2016, I went to school in the middle of all of the cancer stuff. So I would have a surgery, I would recover a little, and then I would go to school for six weeks. That was in 2016. Now I have one thing to left, a thesis for my MFA in playwriting, and I've written plays, and it's kind of funny because on my 30-year anniversary from my Jeff nomination, I was awarded a Kennedy Playwriting Award for a play I wrote. In the middle of it all, I lost my father in that 2016 to 21 period. I was diagnosed with lung cancer. So I had a bilateral mastectomy in June 20. 12. It was probably the some run of a touring show. And it, in fact, it had to be because I remember talking to, I, I usually do carpentry or properties. And I was on the carpentry crew. And I remember talking to my boss saying, something's not right. You know, I'm, I'm having issues with this. And he was able to for the run, make it work for me. He talked to somebody and, you know, they shifted some things around. Yeah. You know, I had been looking forward to this job forever and we found all this out really at the last minute. So the gig was going to start in two weeks. So my mom came to visit, you know, the doctor assured me that I'd be able to go and do my job. In, in two weeks. So we, we, we hurried up the procedure to withdraw the tumor. And then I started like two weeks later. 
And the very first day of rehearsal, we were recording vocals and stuff like that. So I was really grateful that I made it there because that's ended up being a, a gift that keeps on giving. Um, the show, I, I'll say the show, the show is Dear Evan Hansen. My very first day of rehearsal, because I was an understudy and usually off Broadway, the understudies come in when tech rehearsal starts. The, the for very first day I came in was the day that we recorded all of the background vocals because they use background vocals in the um, show. I'm really grateful I made it to that because I didn't end up moving with the show when it moved to Broadway, but I still get residuals like every time, not right now because it's COVID, but when it's on Broadway, I get residuals every six months when it's touring or anytime they use any of the songs in the Thanksgiving Day Parade or anything like that, I'll get a residual because my voice is, is in the ensemble tracks that they've used for everything. They used them on the recording. So that is that was a gift that kept on giving <laughs> to make it so I have to make it to rehearsal and yeah and it was important for me not to let people know necessarily and because I was understudying you know the doctor was like yeah you can sit in the audience in two weeks and like watch the show you should be fine so it was almost like a blessing gig to have at that time yeah because I did because then skipping forward to when I had treatment um I did end up sleeping a lot of those days like in the rehearsal room because I wasn't on necessarily. We'd kind of done all the rehearsing we can do. So during some of those days when it was, what do you call it? The nadir or the nader or whatever? The uh, nader time. The worst times. And I lived like a block away from the theater too, which was really nice too. So I could come home and take naps and stuff. But yeah, the tumor removal wasn't really what was the fatiguing part. The, the chemo was what the fatiguing part was. I had intentionally kind of booked a pause. A lot of the stuff that I was really involved artistically wise, kind of naturally would do a little bit of a pause during the winter months. So I was teaching a lot, but we'd scheduled a little bit of a break so that I was still working on a bunch of things. I had a Shakespeare festival that I was starting to produce and I had a couple of plays that I knew were gonna be coming up in the summer. So my dockets are always pretty full but I had already scheduled in like a little bit, like a few months of a buffer. I didn't really want him to be anywhere, like in daycare or anything like that, or with a babysitter until he was older. I really wanted to work that out with my husband's schedule and everybody was really gracious about that. I was in like a little bit of an actual pause, but then also in that pause, of course, writing curriculum, creating pitches and proposals for different shows that I was already attached to that were coming up. I had just done a beautiful, beautiful production of A Man of No Importance here in New York. I played one of the ladies, Mrs. Curtin, with a company called B-Side Productions. And it was just a beautiful, joyful production. There were other people who had been through grief. So it was sort of that first show back after my mother passed. And it was an incredible group of people. And I had been like, well, I'm going to go to Hawaii. I did that trip to Hawaii. And during that trip to Hawaii, I'd had pain. So I knew that I was coming back to the cystoscopy. 
and, and the trip to Hawaii was also my sister's wedding. That was part of that whole time. So yeah, that, I, it had just been after that. And that production, again, was so joyful also because then the, the Supreme Court decision came down. So we had just done a beautiful musical about love, who you love, and a closeted man in, in Ireland. And it was just a special time. Yeah. And I had also been, been studying more film than I had ever done, film acting, television acting on camera. Um, so, so that's kind of where my, where my interests had been too, which ended up being great because among other things, I met some wonderful people through my, my acting teacher, Bob Krakauer has a really devoted, great group who work with him and then form groups of our own to to continue practicing scene practice and stuff. So I had met some lovely people, one of whom is an incredibly genius nutritionist who came right over to my house and threw away all of my rancid oils and stuff like that. As it turned out, when I went through my surgery and my chemo, that group and I worked on a project where we, that we called winter camp because we went out to somebody's house and ended up shooting five or six short films all at once. None of them turned out good or even in any way what we wanted, but we learned a lot. And it was like this project that I could do that was artistic and that I was interested in while I was going through chemo. I, yeah. I didn't work until actually the start of the year. I started chemo. I didn't know how my body was going to handle the chemo after surgery, you know, surgery and chemo. Um, and so then I, I think I was gone from like, yeah, like two months. And then I started working two days a week because one of the days I was on chemo. So I would have to come home. I'd be working lunch. I'd come home and I'd unhook myself from the chemo. My mom would come and help me. Yeah. Unhook the, the chemo myself. Like, and I had a port, you know, so my, I couldn't do like, I couldn't pinch and do the, so my mom would meet me and I would come home for like a half hour, undo the whole pump, <laughs> go back to work. And the only reason I had energy for that was because I was on steroids. <laughs> When I first moved to New York, I mean, I was a corporate secretary. That's sort of my first job when I moved to New York in 96. So that's what I always try to go back to with a temp agency and between gigs and things like that. I had worked for this investment banker at his office as his secretary for several, several months. And then Tale of Two Cities came along. So I quit that. Then he said, you know, once we closed, he said, if you're interested, we would love to have you work for the family. So I was like, okay, I can do that. And they were paying me the same rate that they were paying me at the corporate office. So I thought, I can do that. I actually was doing an encores, city center encores, just before I went to the doctor to get this all checked out. Well, I kind of didn't know I was tired all the time the fatigue was overwhelming. And I felt like I sort of had a cold. I wasn't sure. My glands felt like they were swollen, but really it was, it was my lymph nodes filling up with cancer. I had just finished a show in Brooklyn at a really tiny theater and they did performances in a church. And I can't even remember the name of the theater now. And I want to say it was Annie that I did. 
And I remember the community I had met doing that show because I still I did my full time. I worked for the magazine during the day. And so I did that in the evening. And I remember that there was a parent of one of the kids in the show who had also gone through the same cancer. And so that was very helpful for me to be able to have conversations with her and obviously see her and her years living a really great life. So they were all very supportive. What was pretty wild for me is, you know, your thyroid sits right in front of your vocal cords. And so as a singer, even though I wasn't performing as an artist full time, I didn't know if I was ever going to go back to doing that or, you know, I hadn't ever questioned that before, right? It's kind of like one of those things where you, you have this and the minute it is potentially going to go away, then you really start questioning, oh gosh, do I want to go back into being an artist full time? Is this what I really want to do? And that was really scary for me to have to sign the paper that says I might lose my voice, like the waiver that says there's a potential for this. And I remember my mom, before I was going in, my mom came out for the surgery. She was like, you have to be very careful. She's a singer. I remember her just saying that to the doctors before I was going in. It was years before I sang again. I did sing at a wedding pretty soon after, but I mean, I didn't have a normal speaking voice for probably at least three months, at least. It was scary to think, oh, this thing might be gone. When it comes back, it's probably going to be different. That felt really just unsettling, I think, right? There's this thing that I guess it helped me realize how much I'd potentially taken for granted when they're saying, oh, you might not be able to sing again. Sign this waiver. It says you won't sue us if you can't. Cool. And I remember I threw myself a little bit more into that marketing side of my career. And I think I totally did that out of fear, out of worrying what's my voice going to sound like? It's probably not going to be the same. That feels really scary. It wasn't until I moved to Colorado, probably. Four or five years later, four years after my surgery, that I had some career shifts and I took a year off and I started auditioning again. I started studying music again and I started auditioning again. And so I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna face this, this thing and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work this voice back to where it was. And that was exhilarating and equally terrifying. Yeah, that was. That was hard to, I think, accept because I felt like it was, I imagine this is probably, even though I wasn't using it on the daily, you know, someone is a dancer, someone is an athlete and something occurs that they're not able to do the thing they've always done before that they were going to use as a career. I imagine that just being really, oh, who am I? I've always been a singer. I'm working in marketing. I've always identified as being a singer. And so it's one of those moments that I felt very attached to that. And I had to unwind from it, make sure I knew who I was outside of that thing. If this thing goes away, it's a possibility. Mm 
Who are you? What will you do? Yeah. Like big life questions. <laughs> Special thanks to Brianna, Christina, Erin, Sarah, Laura, Becca, Amanda, Joanna, Katie, Rebecca, and Brianna for sharing their stories. Bad Right Breast is produced by me, Lori Brown Kindred. Music is by the one and only Becca Ayers. Graphic art is by the ever-suave Justin West. Website is by the incredible Alec Adelia. Links to all of their work can be found on the website. Special thanks to Buzzsprout. Please share this podcast with anyone and everyone you know that has been affected by cancer. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Bad Right Breast. But most importantly, we want to hear from you. Please call us with your story at 646-494-4962. Once again, that's 646-494-4962. Or email us at badrightbreast at gmail.com. And let us know if you want your story to be kept anonymous or use a pseudonym. Until next time, listen to your body and take care of yourself.